Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Good morning, and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I, I was reminded that a few weeks ago, I made a comment at the beginning of Parshat Mishpatim, which was the great Parsha dealing with um, a collection of laws uh, following the Jews leaving Egypt. It is by far, of all the Torah portions available that we read throughout the year, it is the one that contains the most mitzvot, the most commandments. I think the number is 52 uh, out of 613. It's a big, big chunk of things. And then I said, I related a story when I, was, uh, when I was younger and in school, how one of the teachers during a discussion on the weekly Torah portion, he turned around and he said, beginning with Parshat Mishpatim, the Torah portion of all the laws, he said, well, the good times are over. Meaning, from Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus, all these wonderful descriptive stories that they're over and done with. Fact of the matter is, I think I made a mistake. Or maybe he made a mistake. The Torah portion of Mishpatim, while certainly lacking in the colorful kind of narratives that fill the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, is filled with the great story of legal theories and how you build a world, and we discuss that. And upon reflection, looking at some of the great laws that are embedded in there, such as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, I mean, there are provocative storylines to be found within the iterations of all of those laws. So I'm going to restate something. I said two weeks ago that the good times were over. No, no, I was wrong. Really, with this morning's Torah portion, actually last week's, but this morning too, the good times are really over. <laughs> and that is when you look at the Torah portion from last week and this morning, Parsha Titzavev, we are knee-deep in details of the Torah reading that describes the construction of the Mishkan, the portable tabernacle, and all of the appurtenances, all of the things that surrounded it. Not just the building itself of this portable tabernacle that the Jews used when they wandered in the desert, but also all of the furniture that was used inside of the tabernacle, the altar, the menorah, the Ark of the Covenant. Not only that, but we also read, as we continue this morning, of the elaborate detail of that was put into and in prescribing the garments that the high priest would wear. If you were here this morning... I would be pointing to you to show you one of the stained glass windows that we have in this uh, sanct beautiful sanctuary that has a depiction of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. By the for the record, the expression, the big kahuna, it comes from the word Kohen, just saying. So if you look at the stained glass window, um, and God willing, you'll be able to see it soon, that has a beautiful rendition of what the clothing that he used to wear. So I want to read this to you, and there's a point to be found in it, of course. V'yasita choshen mishpat ma'asei choshev, k'ma'asei efo ta'asenu zahav. The Torah reading for this morning tells us that you shall make a breastplate of judgment, the work of skillful artisans, like the work of the ephod, which is the robe, that you will make of it, of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet, of fine twinned linen, and you'll make it like that. Four squares shall it be, and then double on the end. A span, it shall be the length thereof, and a span of the breadth thereof. Meaning, it'll be a perfect square. And you'll set in it 
settings of stones, four rows of stones. A row of carnelian, topaz, and smaragd shall be on the first row. The second row, it goes on to explain, and all the rows, we are given explicit details, explicit details about which stone is supposed to go into which setting that would form the breastplate of the high priest. The entire Torah portion of this morning, of last week, of those to come, are filled with mind-numbing details, granularity on every level of things that are to be built and made. And as I looked at it this week, I said to myself, wow, what a difference. If I was to ask you what color hair Moses had, what would you say? If I was to ask you what color eyes Jacob had, what would you say? If it wasn't for the Torah's depiction of telling us that King David had red hair, we would have no idea what color hair he had. We certainly don't know what his voice sounded like. If I had asked you, was Joshua tall and thin, or maybe a little stubby and wide, you wouldn't be able to tell me. A survey of looking at, if you've spent any time going to Europe and and I'm sure you have, and God willing, we'll be able to go back soon. And if you have toured some of the remarkable houses of worship, the churches to be found in Europe, the images of biblical characters unwittingly always make them look like Europeans. On the other hand, if you go to churches in Africa, not surprisingly, the biblical characters are all dark. If you look at the stained glass windows here in the sanctuary, you'll in fact see the same thing. There are depictions of biblical characters here. There's a depiction of Aaron the high priest, of Abraham, of Moses. You know who they look like? They look like me and you. <laughs> They're light-skinned. They have light-colored hair. They certainly don't look like the Semitic characters, in fact, that they really, really were. And on some level, what we find here is that the Torah, up until these past few weeks, has represented itself as a book that is supremely lacking in details. In essence, the ideas that we have about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, about David, Moses, and Aaron, and Joshua, about Rebecca, Sarah, Rachel, and Leah, all these individuals... The image of how we think they are, of what they look like, it doesn't come from the text itself. Because the text is silent on that. To the point, we know absolutely nothing of what happened to Moses. From the moment that he is plucked out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter, and he's only but a week or so old, until the moment when he ends up in the slave pits of Egypt, when he's a much older man and he sees the inequity and tragedy and cruelty that the Egyptians are visiting upon the Israelites. There are decades that separate that, and yet we know nothing. The Torah leaves all those details out, and the only place we find those details is inside of ourselves. The scholar, the academician, uh, Ephraim Auerbach, 
once famously penned an article by saying that this little idea that I'm sharing with you, which is based upon this article of his, represents the Torah in fact trusts you. The power of these stories in the Torah tells us that the Torah looked at you as being responsible for completing and writing the text. The absence of details in the text of the Torah is a reflection of the trust and responsibility that you have to fill in the blanks, give it color, imagine yourself in some way as part of the story. It is a remarkable and powerful bend in the tradition of how we understand this book. Unlike today when you open a book and everything is laid out for you, you're passive. Not when you read this, you're active. You don't only get a workout when you go on your Peloton. <laughs> you get a workout when you open up the Torah. But here's the problem. That's all true, certainly, of the Torah that came before. But over these past few weeks, we've been introduced to a Torah that is filled with details. And the question that I want to explore with you is why? To provide an answer of sorts, I want to rely upon one of my most fav favorite teachers, one of Israel's most outstanding theologians who passed away more than 15 years ago. And yet, as I've said many times, if you were to drive around in Israel and put it on Israeli radio, you will un undoubtedly hear his name spoken at least once an hour. His name was Yeshayahu Isaiah Leibovitch. Leibovitz, Isaiah Leibovitz, Yeshayahu Leibovitch. Leibovitch asked the question like this. In the Torah, there are only 32 verses on the creation of the universe. 32. For the creation of the tabernacle and all the other things that we're discussing, hundreds. And he asked the question that I ask, why? And I think an answer can be found in this small but very powerful halachic, halachic or Jewish legal idea about the building of synagogues. Synagogues, we are told, the permanent ones, according to Jewish law, must be built with windows. They cannot be dark, sterile rooms. They have to have windows. And in part because I think that when we utter our prayers, when we say our prayers, we have to involve the world outside of us. Interestingly enough, synagogues are not commanded to be built with skylights <laughs> that we see the heavens. No. We see the world around us. The creation of the universe could only have been done by God. And it is an event that happens once and never happens again. But the work of building this world, the work of creating a more just, tolerant, good society, the work of opening our eyes and seeing injustice on the outside, of seeing racism and cruelty, of inequality, that is the never-ending work that humans engage in. And that requires not only imagination, it requires detail. God didn't build the Mishkan, the portable tabernacle. It was our job to build it. And in building things that are beautiful and lasting, in building things that are inspiring, it takes not only feeling, it takes detail. As we look at the world that we live in, 
we realize the task that lies before us. It is a world that not only inspires in us emotion and creativity and imagination, but in order for us to become the people that we want to be and to build a world that should be, it requires effort and it requires detail. The tabernacle was built with detail because that's how we build the world. Shabbat shalom, everyone.